Uh, as we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father, your word is uh, full of, 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 of promises. Uh, the poet has put it, uh, flowers of sweet fragrance, fruits of refreshing flavor. Uh, and this when we receive it by faith. So may we be made rich in its riches, strong in its power, happy in its joy. May we abide in its sweetness, feast on its preciousness, and draw great strength from its manna. Lord, as we read and think upon your word, we pray that you would increase our faith, that you would transform our lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Ephesians in chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, please. I want to read verses 5 through 9. Ephesians uh, chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will with, uh, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality uh, with him. And then we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. We're back in Ephesians. Um, took a bit of a hiatus through Advent. I've been gone a couple of Sundays, but, but now this is where we, we left uh, we left off. You should have known that. I suppose we've been coming for a while wondering, what's he going to preach today? You should have just known that. There's a great story told about John Calvin. He was um, in his church in Geneva, was actually asked to leave, forced to leave for a while. Uh, and then he returned. The, the big news after a few years of his absence was, what's Calvin going to preach? And, and he picked up in a particular passage in First Timothy and people began to wonder, why this one? And he said, well, if you remember, I left off at the previous verse when I was here last time. Uh, so I'm a bit like that sort of, as I say, a rented pony. I always go back to the barn uh, eventually. So uh, uh, that's the way we have it. So here we are in Ephesians uh, again and chapter 6, verse, verse 5. And you remember we're in the context here where uh, Paul is writing to the church about living wisely. And he tells them that they're to, to live wisely means that they must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the evidence that we see of this filling of the Spirit, he says, is humility that results in our worship of God, that we sing his praises, and that we give him thanks, and also then that we submit to each other to serve each other. So the evidence of this filling of the Spirit is worship out of humility, of course, knowing our dependence upon God, and also this humility that comes by uh, in, in, thus enabling us to serve each other. And then Paul gets very specific. He says, okay, here's how this all plays out in the context of foundational relationships. Foundational relationships, meaning those relationships 
that were established at creation. This is what it means to live out life as a human being in the presence of God. And so he talks about marriage, established at creation, family, established at creation, and work, established at creation. And he says, now this is how we're to live out, um, how we're to live out our lives because you see, faith in Jesus affects everything. It affects everything about our lives. It affects how husbands and wives relate to each other, how parents and children, and how we live in the context of our lives, uh, our lives at work. And so when we consider this, as I say, lives at work, we have to acknowledge the fact that, that Paul uses categories that aren't ours, particularly. He uses bondservants and masters. And, and on its face, at least as we see that, it's quite offensive to us. Uh, we get this sense of slavery and we say that that shouldn't be. There shouldn't be slavery at all. And so we wonder why it is that Paul just simply doesn't denounce it. Uh, why he doesn't advocate the slaves to revolt and, and, and advocate the masters to simply, these Christian masters, to free um, their slaves. And, and, and we wonder about that. Well, a couple of things could be helpful to us. As we think this through, number one is that the slavery in the days of Paul, though not a walk in the park for slaves, uh, is different than our experience, the uh, African slave trade that is such a blight on our own history. Um, And even the sex trafficking slavery that we know true in our own day and country, world and other types of slavery uh, as well. Um, this slavery is somewhat different. Tim Keller, um, pastor, um, New York City, says it like this. He says, this slavery that is outlawed in Scripture was pra- and, and was practiced in the 17th through 19th uh, centuries in Britain and the U.S. and elsewhere was a, a chattel slavery in which the slave's whole person was the property of the master. And when... Keller says that that kind of slavery is outlawed in Scripture. It is. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, it says you shouldn't kidnap and enslave. In 1 Timothy in chapter 1, even you shouldn't kidnap and enslave. That kind of slavery was clearly outlawed in Scripture. We should have known that. So that's a, a type of chattel slavery in which the slave's whole person was the property of the master. He or she could be uh, raped or maimed or killed at the will of the owner. In older bondservant slavery or indentured servanthood, only slaves' productivity, their time and skills, were owned by the master and only temporarily. African slavery, however, was race-based and its default mode was slavery for life. And also, the African slave trade was begun in resource through kidnapping. The Bible unconditionally condemns kidnapping and trafficking in slaves. Uh, it, it does. And in Paul's day, um, there are various reasons that one would be enslaved. And certainly violence and all of that and, and kidnapping. And, and that was uh, for at least the Christian um, out of bounds utterly. But it could be that one had committed a crime and thus was paying for his crime and therefore would be enslaved to another till that crime was paid for, if you will. Uh, In some sense, you may have been a child born into slavery. It may have been a child that couldn't be afforded by parents, and so they sold that child, gave that child to another into this kind of 
slavery, indentured servanthood. It could be you committed. It could be that you had a debt that needed to be paid, and so you were um, indentured to another as a servant until um, the debt could be paid. Um, the Roman Empire was a slave culture, uh, estimated a third to half of uh, the people in the Roman Empire were, were slaves, and slave could be uh, in the various professions of medicine or teaching or even government service and civil service in a way, if you will, in, in addition to other um, pursuits as well. Some uh, slaves were paid, some slaves were paid really well and treated even well in that uh, sense um, they could earn income. There were avenues for slaves to go free, different types of slavery, if you will. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 speaks of, of if you were called to be a slave, that is, if you were, if when you were called to follow Christ, you were a slave, uh, Paul says, remain there. Eh, but if you can get free, get free. And so how could you get free? Well, uh, some could purchase their freedom. Others could work a specific period of time and then uh, be free. So different in that sense. In fact, even translators recognize that. I read this morning out of a newer version of the English Standard Version, which translates this in verse 5 as bond servants. And they do that for a particular reason. Uh, the reason is that, that this word slave can be understood in various ways. Uh, the translators of the English Standard Version um, translated as servants when it's simply a worker who's working for hire, translates it as um, slave, when it's very unlikely that this person will ever be free, translates it as bondservant, when there is opportunity for this person to be free, either by paying for freedom or working long enough to where that freedom is paid for and that set amount of time is given. So that's this sense of, Bond servant, this culture in which Paul is writing. Now, keep in mind, please, that being a bond servant even is no, as I mentioned, no walk in the park. Bond servants, while they're bond servants, uh, aren't even considered to be human in that sense, but rather a tool and an, an adamant tool as opposed to an inanimate one, uh, property, if you will. Um, uh, bond servants generally uh, couldn't uh, inherit, for instance, while they were bond servants. They were considered during this time as being property. So you can only imagine the kind of mindset that a master would have in this kind of relationship, or even the bond servant himself or herself. The master thinking of this person as something less than, different than, than, than human. And so you can imagine the kind of treatment that could be possible in such a situation, or for the bond servant himself or herself to think of himself or herself less than, if you will, human, and, and to begin to think then of, of, of how one would behave in that situation or how one would approach the employment situation, the work situation that was, that was there. Now, Paul, you see, is writing in this context. He's writing in this context where some bond servants, slaves, have become believers in Jesus, and some masters of bond servants have become believers in Jesus. And here they are together in the church. And so the question is now, how do we live in this culture, in this situation? Um, but in so writing, we need to realize that he planted all the deep seeds that were necessary 
to undermine this and other forms of slavery, really. Because he gets at the heart. He didn't get the legal aspect, the legal arrangement, but he got it at the heart of, of slaves and masters and how we, how we see ourselves, how we understand each other in relationship uh, with each other. For instance, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, uh, verse 21, Paul's, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. And again, he's writing in a similar situation, same kind of context, where there, where there are bondservants and, and masters in the context of the church, where some bondservants have become believers. And so the question is now, how do you understand yourself? And so Paul says, were you a bondservant when, when called? Don't be concerned about that. That is, don't be concerned about the fact that you were called while you were a bondservant. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. He says, here's how you understand yourself. Don't have your identity be defined by this earthly relationship. It's a word to us as well, right? Don't allow your identity... To be defined by this earthly relationship, our identity is found in the Lord. The first question we ask ourselves is, who am I in him? Who am I because of him? Right? Who does he define me to be? And he says, well, in him you're free. You're free in the most foundational, the most profound place, which is you're free from sin. See, as a human being, that's, that's the primary bondage. The primary bondage in human life is that we're bound in bondage to sin. And so if we're bound to sin, we're bound to sin. Right? See what I did there? Now, uh, it's I've freed you from that. I've freed you from the penalty, the guilt of that sin. How? By sending Jesus. How did he do it? He died. He took the penalty for us. And then I freed you from the power, the dominion of that bondage. How did he do that? When Jesus came, he died thus to secure our forgiveness. And then when he rose, he secured for us this new life. So Paul says, when Christ died, we died. When he rose, we rose. So when he died, the penalty of sin was taken and we're forgiven. When he rose to newness of life, we rose in him to newness of life. What's that newness of life? To be in relationship with God, a free man, if you will, free from the bondage of sin so he can be united to God and all of that through Jesus. And he says, he says that's the, the essence of it. For he says, where he was called in the Lord as a bondservant, as a freed man in the Lord, likewise, he was free when he was called, is now a bondservant of Christ. And so you see, you, you know, you're not a bondservant in the earthly sense. That's not how you think of yourself. Though you may be in some legal sense in the world. But you're, you're free in Christ. And yet, you're now his. You're now his, you see. I remember one time years ago, I've shared this story before, but it's so profound in my own life. I was, a number of years ago, Karen and I had um, neighbors 
which were quite fond, and they weren't believers, and so we spent a great deal of time with them, and uh, opportunities arose as, as they do to share faith. One night, I was able to share the faith, my, our faith with, with the husband, and uh, on the wee hours of the morning, and, 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 and it was just such a wonderful time that I was convinced that he would believe, and he didn't. And it just, you know, I thought, I was awesome, right? I mean, I, I said everything right. I, I, how could he not? I mean, how could, how could he not? And at the end of the time, he, he, he said to me something I'll obviously never forget. I said, why won't you trust Christ? And he said, well, I, I realize that if I accept the gift I belong to the giver. Oh, yes, 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 that's true. He got it, though he didn't. And that's the sense here. You're free, you get the gift, your gift of freedom, and now you belong to the giver. But, 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 but the giver is Christ. Why would you not want to belong to him, you see? And so the seeds were planted there. And not only that, the seeds of, of the destruction of slavery in any sense like this or otherwise were planted because Paul's writing to slaves and masters together. He's assuming, he knows, that in the church in Ephesus, there are slaves and masters. What are they doing? They're worshiping together. And he's writing to slaves and masters and he's telling them both the same thing about their lives. You've been chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless in his sight. You've been adopted into his family, you see. You've both been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're one body, one household, one temple in the Lord being built together. It isn't either or, it's a both and. You're, you're all together, you see. And, and now you're brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and, and that changes, that changes everything. Or maybe out in the world, there are certain relationships that, that, that are established and, and, and so forth. But, but in here or, as we share life together as brothers and sisters in Christ, that's it. We're one body. And, and, and both slaves and masters sit in the same congregation and they sing the same praises to the same God and they make the same confession of sin. And when they confess their sins, what they're saying is, I need a savior. I'm no better than you. One of the reasons, I've said this before, but just to kind of lay it out again, one of the reasons we do a, a confession, a real thing, and we all say it out loud together, and we don't just kind of close our eyes and just do something silent, which is fine to do as well, but so that I can hear you and you can hear me. Say that I'm a sinner in need of the forgiveness of God. And in that culture, whether you were the master or whether you were the slave or in our situation, whether you're the boss or the employee, here we are sitting together and we're saying we're all the same. And, and, and how can I, how can I be prideful and put myself over you when I'm simply as you, a sinner saved by grace and that's it. And there, there's no pride to that. 
I can't exalt myself. You can't exalt yourself over another, regardless of how much education you have or you don't have, how much money you have or you don't have, how much prestige in the culture you have or you don't have. When we all come together, this is all of us together. And so what would happen in a society if all kinds of people really worshipped together, right? Really acknowledged You're a believer in Jesus. I'm a believer in Jesus. I know what that means about me. Thus, I know what it means about you. And here we are all together. That would, Paul writes, destroy this enmity that we have between us. And so it, Paul's very words undermine this, 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 this whole institution. This is a great book when you have a chance. You've probably read it. It's just one page in your Bible, one page letter called Philemon. So you can't even refer to Philemon chapter one because it's just, just have to look at the verses because it's just one, one letter, one chapter, if you will, Philemon. And in there, uh, Philemon is a slave owner who's a believer and, and his slave Onesimus has run away. And when Onesimus ran away, he ran uh, to where Paul was by the providence of God and, and became a believer in Jesus. And now Paul is doing this uh, probably unheard of thing. He's saying to this slave, uh, Onesimus, uh, go back. And it's a dangerous thing because, because Philemon could have had him tortured, could have had him killed, could have done who knows what to him. But he says, I need you to go back. And so Paul writes to Philemon this wonderful letter about receiving this brother. Now, I I don't know, maybe he did. I don't know if Philemon really have a category in his brain for that. Sort of like forgiving your computer, right? How, how, How could you... Why would you do that? But he says he's your brother. So Paul writes. He says, for this, coming to faith and coming back to you, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? I mean, no laws were changed. Society didn't change. But this relationship changed. Why? Because they're brothers now. And even though perhaps Onesimus would go back and still take up his place as he had before as a bondservant and and what he did and all of that in the household of Philemon, still you know that there's everything has now changed in the context of how Onesimus would see himself and how Philemon would see Onesimus. And so, so we see the very seeds of destruction of this institution were, were laid in all of this. But, but Paul has a more hmm, immediate situation to deal with. He has to say, okay, now, what do we do here? Nothing's changed legally. I can't change it legally. We're just a little group and, and we don't really have any power in this society at all so to change anything. So now what do we do? The fact that we have bond servants and we have masters in, in, in the church, how, how should they respond as such? What does it mean now that you're a Christian and you're a bond servant? What does it mean now that you're a master 
a Christian and yet a master over others. So that's what he's laying out at this, at this, at this point. Um, and the principle for both slaves, bondservants, and masters uh, at this point is that here we have something, this foundational relationship, this foundational thing called, called work. Foundational, when I say that, I mean it was established at creation. We know that God is a worker. We're made in his image. Uh, one of the most familiar aspects of the opening chapter of Genesis or so, the first two, that we find that, that on the seventh day, God rested from his work, his work of creation. And then he makes and calls Adam to do what? To work, Adam and Eve, or to take dominion over the garden, the earth at that point. And they're to work it, cultivate it. And that's what they do as those created in the image of God um, to work it. Um, we know that just as in all relationships, sin adversely affected our work relationship. We know that uh, sin adversely affected a relationship between Adam and Eve, that is between husbands and wives. We know that, that, that sin adversely affects relationships between parents and children. We know that sin adversely affects our work life. Even in the curse in Genesis chapter 3, we realize that now the earth fights back, if you will. But we also realize that, that it affects us, work does it. I mean, sin does. It affects our values and thus that affects our work as well. Affects our values to the degree that, that we might now think that work is the ultimate thing for us and what it can provide for us is the ultimate when that isn't true at all. When God is the ultimate. And we mustn't substitute work as our God, as our idol. So we have to be very careful with that. We have to be careful that sin, because sin affects our character. It affects how we relate to others. In our pride, we can be puffed up about our work. In our pride, we can say, look what I do. Uh, and, and that can puff us up and make us feel, think ourselves to be, more important, more valuable inherently than others because of the work that we do. Uh, could cause us to be envious of others. Look what they do, look what I do. And I really can't relate to them because of what they do. And therefore, um, it also affects our character in the sense that perhaps in our work lives we may become lazy, we may steal, we may lie. We may not do our work as we ought to do it because of the selfishness of our own lives and the self-interestedness interestedness in our own lives and existence and all of that as well. If you're a boss, it may cause you, because of your selfishness and your pride, to undervalue the work of others and underpay them, underreward them, and all of that. And as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, some of the sin causes us to think, I don't really need God. Look what I can do. Look what I've done. My own wisdom, my own strength. Look what I've produced. And we fixate on that as opposed to uh, on God. And so notice how... Paul addresses them. He says, bondservants. 
Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would, as you would Christ. See, that's it. And then look at he says with masters. Masters do the same and stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. In other words, at its very core, all of us are to realize that just like everything else in the context of life, our work is, how would you complete that sentence? Our work is worship. It's to be done, like everything else, to the glory of God. It's an aspect of worship. Well, it's not this worship where we gather together and sing and all that sort of thing. But, but it's worship in the sense that, that I, I do it uh, for, if you will, in the context of uh, the glory of God is to reflect him. Uh, one author has put it like this. He says, he says, when you become a Christian, there's a change in the audience. That is the audience... The onlooker is no longer yourself, is not simply others, but it's, it's God who is the one who is the onlooker. And he says this, he says, behind us, we're to discern the figure of our master in heaven, namely our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, workers are to see beyond their work, see beyond their boss, and see Jesus. Bosses, or to look beyond their employees and see Jesus. I mean, that's how we have it. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ, verse 5. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, regardless of whether he's bondservant or free. In other words, we should see that we're doing all of this for Christ's sake. We're seeing him in this. No matter what other arrangements there are, we're to see him. And the same thing with masters. He says, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. You see, you're to realize that you have a master and your master is in heaven. Don't, don't ever, he says, don't ever forget that. Now, maybe there's some of you thinking, oh, man, I thought it was hard enough to please my boss, not to please Jesus. Right? I mean, uh, uh, how is that going to happen? And then we have to realize who Jesus really is, you see. That's the point of, of all our obedience, all our service, you see. Who Jesus really is. Remember what he said, Matthew chapter 11. And, and, and he meant what he said. This is, of course, true what he said because he said it. And Jesus said, come to me, all, you, all who labor... And are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Now, he didn't have in mind simply, or maybe even primarily our work life, but it certainly doesn't exclude that. So they'll give you rest. And when he says rest, he doesn't mean in a work context, a day off or all days off. He says, but in the, in the essence of your work, I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace, you see. 
I'll give you contentment in the midst of that. And then he says this, take my yoke upon you. And we think of a yoke, I don't know about you, but I think of a yoke, I just don't want to start doing this, you know, just kind of... uh, But it's a metaphor yoke. It's a metaphor for a teacher teaching a student. You can see how that is Jesus' intent. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy... And my burden is light. Now, what does he mean by that? He says, my yoke doesn't chafe. Why? Because my, my yoke is, is the exact right one. You can really trust me. You can really trust me. You, you may find your master or your boss difficult to trust. You may even find your employees difficult to trust. But he says, trust me. Do it my way. See it from my perspective. In your Work and in your supervising, trust me, he said. I I really do know what I'm doing here. Trust me. And, And we can do that, you see. And why can we do that? We can do that because he's Jesus. We can do that because he's the Lord. We can do that because of what we know of him. What's he done? What's he done? That's why I often quote this passage in Romans chapter 8 at communion where the apostle writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him give us all things? Now, what does that mean? There's a sense in which, um, on God's behalf, Paul is pleading with us logically. He was saying, think this through. Look what he's done. And since he's done that, that is, he didn't spare that which is most valuable to himself, his own son. We all get that, that that would be the most valuable thing in God, his son. If he didn't spare his son, why do we think he'll keep anything else good from us? And and the same thing here, you see. If you're his bondservant, follow him and you really can. Why? Because look at what he's done. And you see, his, what he's done should convince us of his love for us. Love is often tested that way, not by simply what someone says, but what they do. I remember one time I asked my children, I said, how do you know I love your mom? And one of my kids said, well, you don't hit her. And I thought, well, that's good. <laughs> Is there anything else you've noticed? Uh, maybe positively. Uh, uh, but how do we know? Well, we know by how one treats the other, you see. That's this sense of, of, of knowing real love. That's why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians somewhere. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ controls us. Another translation, for the love of Christ compels us. As I say, once I really know the love of Christ, then there's a sense in which I'm compelled. I'm compelled to follow him. Remember that time, John chapter 6, Jesus had said some hard things to the disciples disciples, big group disciples. And many of them left. 
He looked at his own and says, what are you going to do? And Peter, I think, said, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's a sense in which once we've been loved by God, once we know his words of eternal life, once we know that, how can we follow anyone else? He says, that's what, that's what a knowledge of my love is to do for you. That when push comes to shove, you, you follow me. Why? Because you know. You really know that I love you. And how do you know that I love you? You know that I love you because of what I've done for you. So Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. That one has died for all and therefore all have died. In other words, I get it. I get what you've done for me. You've brought sins forgiven. And he died for all that those who, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, who for their sake has died and was raised. So we're compelled, you see, to follow him. And he said, this is true in your work life as well. That, that see Jesus past, if you will, if we could. Just put it that way, metaphorically, past your boss. See Jesus past your employees to realize, bottom line, you are worshiping him in this relationship. You're worshiping him in this relationship. And that's a good thing. So trust him. So what does he say? Well, he says this. Obey your earthly masters uh, with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would as you would Christ. Now, we know when he says obey, it's not absolute. We know there are, there are um, 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 Christ is the only one that we obey absolutely. We don't obey any earthly One's absolutely. We said this in the context of marriage because it's in the context of, of family as well. But we, we get that. We know that um, uh, our, our following another is never to be idolatrous. Thus, our work should never uh, define us to be able to make it an idol for us. Uh, our, work, our work should never, uh, we, we, we needn't sin, if you will, uh, for our boss. Encourages us, even demands of us to sin in particular ways, to, to steal from someone else for him or her, to lie to someone else. Uh, we ought not do it, although any boss that would have their employee steal or lie is rather short-sighted. Because anybody who would steal or lie for the boss would probably steal from or lie to the boss. So if you have a thief and a liar who works for you, it's not a good thing, even if they're doing it for you, because uh, they'll do it against you uh, as well. We even know, in the, sadly, but so obviously in the world in which we live now, uh, uh, the sexual improprieties that can happen in employment relationships. So if ever you're in a situation like that, of course, you should not sin. Sometimes even more subtly, our jobs entice us to sin by causing us to neglect our families for the sake of our work, causing us to neglect worship for the sake of our work, right? Cause us to neglect even perhaps our health for the sake of our work. And so we need to be cautious not to be led into sin by our work. In our work lives. But still he says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, that is, respecting them with a sincere heart, that is to really do your job. Um, 
sincerely. And you say, well, that's a difficult thing. Sometimes I, I, I don't live, I don't work sincerely single-minded to just be devoted to what I'm supposed to do for my employer. What do I do about that? And the answer, of course, you do about that like everything else you do when you sin. You confess it to yourself, to God. With some, some context, maybe even your boss. I don't know, I'll leave that up to you. That could be a dangerous thing. But, uh, but, but, but to deal with it, you see, and to ask God to help you to, to work sincerely and honestly. And why do we do that? Well, we do that because that's the will of God. We, we do that because we must realize that we are always, as Paul writes to Titus, adorning the gospel with our lives. Uh, for instance, uh, Paul writes about similar things in First, uh, first Timothy. Uh, let's just go to the Titus one. That's probably more clear. The Titus chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What does he mean by that? Well, to adorn something means to enhance its beauty. Um, Christmas fir trees are enhanced. Their beauty is enhanced by putting ornaments on them, I suspect, at certain times of the year for certain types of celebrations. Uh, uh, a necklace worn around the, around the neck could adorn the beauty of the person wearing it. You see, it's supposed to complement it. It's supposed to show it off. And so our lives, even our work lives, are to show off how great God is. And so we need, to, we need to be that person who sincerely works, who honestly works, uh, who, who doesn't hide, who doesn't steal, who doesn't lie, who doesn't slough off, who isn't lazy, who isn't complaining, but actually does the work. Why? Because that's the way Christ would have it, and that adorns him well. Not by way of eye service, it is just doing what's right when you're being watched to, in order to promote yourself as a people pleaser. It's good to please people, but the point there is here we're pleasing God but to live as bondservants of Christ, doing his will, rendering service with a good will, honestly, as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good we do, and here's the freedom that he'll receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free, that is, the Lord is good. He knows what we do. He's just, he's kind, he's gracious. We're free. You may not get what you want now. And again, in our economy, we can do some things about that. But if that doesn't work even, we can still trust him. That he will have for us this glorious and this grand inheritance. And the same thing with masters. The amazing thing, he says, masters, do the same thing to them. In other words, treat them in the same way, which means they're realizing that their real master is Christ, you realize that your real master is Christ. And so treat them with that knowledge. Treat them understand, with understanding that. Don't threaten them. Don't, don't, don't pull your weight in such a way that's unjust to them. Don't threaten them. Uh, but to know, to know that they belong to the Lord and that you belong to him and that you're his master. So you see, that's ultimate for us. And that's the question for us as we 
leave this Sunday worship and go to Monday worship for many of us, which is, do I see Christ? Do I see him in my work life? And do I glorify him in my work life? Do I realize that when I'm serving my boss, I'm serving Christ? Do I realize when I'm supervising my people, I'm serving Christ? I want to end this morning with a prayer, normally the prayers of the people, but I printed it, had it printed in the bulletin uh, this morning so you can take it with you. It's online when you look on the bulletin section of our website. Um, or if you don't want to do that, if you email us, we'll just email it to you. But it's a prayer that I've prayed since I found it decades ago. It's a prayer of John Calvin. And I, as many of you know, I'm a great plagiarizer of prayers. <laughs> I, I figure they're all public domain, right? And you speak to God. And so... Uh, I want to pray this for us. It doesn't match perfectly all this text, but it matches our own hearts as to how we're to, to live. Let's, let me pray. My God, Father and Savior, since you've commanded us to work in order to meet our needs, sanctify our labor that it may bring nourishment to our souls as well to, as to our bodies. Make us constantly aware that our efforts are worthless unless guided by your light and by your hand. Make us faithful to the particular tasks for which you've bestowed upon us the necessary gifts, taking from us any envy or jealousy at the vocations of others. Give us a good heart to supply the needs of the poor, saving us from any desire to exalt ourselves over those who receive our bounty. And if you should call us into greater poverty than we humanly desire, save us from any spirit of defiance or resentment, but rather let us graciously and humbly receive the bounty of others. And above all, may every temporal grace be matched by spiritual grace, that in both body and soul we may give you glory. In Jesus' name.